Welcome to a nonfiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff. I'm the author, and this is Dedication, building the Seattle branches of Mary Baker Eddy's church, a centennial story. Episode 43, Art Glass. There was one important benefit for Fourth Church of Christ Scientist Seattle from George Foote Dunham's extended travels in the East during the summer of 1922. That benefit related to their art glass. Mr. Dunham had the opportunity to visit the Dannenhofer Glassworks Factory in Brooklyn, New York, and he came away with some new ideas for the design of the windows for the edifice under construction in downtown Seattle. During one of his visits with the building committee, he shared his new inspiration. The windows would be a very important architectural feature of the church. Indeed, the very identity of the building it was well worth putting top quality into the stained glass. Dunham had specified Dannenhofer art glass even before his visit to the factory. They were, after all, known to be the largest manufacturers of opalescent, hand-rolled, and drapery glass in the East, and the very best. Church-building projects for every denomination throughout the country used Dannenhofer. As far as Dunham was concerned, no other art glass supplier was even worth considering. The founder of the Brooklyn Company, John Dannenhofer, was known as a pioneer of pioneers in glassmaking. For Dunham to have visited the factory at all was a special privilege, because the details of their processes and formulas was a carefully protected secret. Dannenhofer was known as the best color producer in the world, according to the Brooklyn Eagle, which explained, His blending of the different chemicals through which the various colors are made was something short of marvelous. They started with Massachusetts white sand and then added soda ash, alkali, and metallic oxide. Other substances were added to create different colors. To make ruby red, they added flakes of 24 karat gold to the mix. The ingredients for each batch were twirled and whirled, round and round, then shoveled into pots and heated to 3,500 degrees. Once everything had melted to a red-hot lump, it was pulled like homemade taffy, flattened out onto a sheet, and then gradually cooled in ovens. When extra effects were desired, graceful ripple patterns could be created by pulling and twisting an iron prong through the sheets while the glass was still pliable. Both the company founder and his son John had studied chemistry but the glass manufacturing process was still viewed as something of an art, with less than completely reliable results. 
as one might say in a whisper, John Dannenhofer revealed in a 1905 interview with the New York Times. There are only two things more uncertain, the mood of a woman and the heels of a mule. We, for instance, never know exactly how the shades will be in the finished product. The high cost for their glass, hundreds of dollars for each window, was due in part to the fact that 20 times as much glass was rejected, broken, and discarded as what ended up being shipped out for an order. When Dunham visited the factory, neither the founding Denenhofer nor his more ambitious sons, John and Nicholas, were still running this famous company, begun in 1888. A third-generation family member, George Bernard Dannenhofer, had been sufficiently trained in supervising the secret process that the company was still going. Dannenhofer Glassworks only manufactured the glass. The glass sheets they produced needed to be cut and the pieces assembled by craftsmen who specialized in the art of stained glass windows. In Dunham's view, the only craftsman in the Pacific Northwest qualified to do a sufficiently acceptable artistic job was David L. Povey, owner of Povey Brothers Glass Company in Portland, Oregon. Mr. Povey had done the work for the Dannenhofer windows for both First and Third Churches of Christ Scientist in Seattle. Dunham brought Povey to a Fourth Church Building Committee meeting in November, and together they presented several sketched ideas for consideration. Then in January, Povey sent a full-size sample window for one of the smaller openings, demonstrating their skillful use of Dannenhofer glass. A representative from the Belknap Glass Company came to show some samples and offered a bid to do all the same glasswork for about half the price. The building committee was expected, as a general rule, to use the lowest bidder. In this case, they stuck with Dunham's recommendation, at least for the auditorium windows. But they decided to save some money by using the lower-cost Belknap Glass Company for all the other windows in the church. They placed their order with Dannenhofer in February 1923, expecting the windows to be ready to install in six months during the final phase of construction. They ordered amber flesh and opal glass in light and medium densities. Dunham specified that the windows would be shaded darker at the top of the windows and the source of light would be considered so that the overall appearance would be balanced. Only the best grade of glass would be used, perfectly blended. The interior decoration color scheme for the entire church was coordinated with the art glass windows. Dunham's wife, Violet, was involved in the color recommendations. George and Violet brought armfuls of color swatches and flooring material samples to a building committee meeting to show and discuss. They recommended mulberry tone carpet in the auditorium and gray linoleum and gray tile in the foyer. For wall tint, they suggested 
proper proportions of raw umber, burnt sienna, and vermilion, for the woodwork an ivory finish, and for the birch wood pews a brown mahogany wood stain with a rubbed varnish finish. On April 23, 1923, 14 cases of art glass were loaded by Dannenhofer onto the steamer ship Corbis, scheduled to leave New York on May 2nd. The Corbis was headed first for the port of San Francisco, a 5,000-mile ocean journey through the Panama Canal that took about four weeks, and then north, reaching Portland a few days later. Dannenhofer had to convince the steamer company to prioritize the glass cases to get it onto this ship. Even so, the shipment arrived in Portland on June 11th, two weeks later than expected. But anticipating its arrival, Mr. Povey was already set up with drawings laid out and marked for cutting the glass, so he could start working as soon as the glass was unpacked. The Dunhams made daily visits to the Povey Brothers Glass Company workroom on 5th and Flanders to make sure the work was staying on schedule. The art glass windows were ready in time for July 5th installation, right on schedule. Povey sent them to Seattle on Independence Day. The window installation may not have begun on Thursday, July 5th, however, because it was practically a second holiday that year. At least it was in the Seattle area. The same day the art class windows were traveling from Portland to Seattle, also en route from Portland to Seattle, was the President of the United States of America. President Warren G. Harding was on a public speaking tour of the western United States, starting from St. Louis, the gateway to the west. In anticipation of Harding's arrival to the Puget Sound area, the United States Naval Fleet was amassing in Elliott Bay, making for an especially exciting Independence Day for Seattle. The President was scheduled to pass through Tacoma on his way to the Alaska Territory. Seattle residents traveled by car, train, and boat to the Tacoma Stadium where Harding spoke to an enthusiastic crowd of more than 25,000 people standing out in the cold, drizzling rain to hear the words of their country's chief executive. Thousands more waited on the streets during driving, heavy rain, cheering and waving their American flags, hoping to catch a glimpse of the president as he passed by in his flag-draped Cadillac. As the president's ship left the port of Tacoma headed north, the roar of the crowds on the beaches, it was reported, could be heard two miles offshore. The presidential ship, with its battleship escorts, detoured briefly through Elliott Bay, then headed north for a three-week tour of Alaska. When President Harding returned on July 27th, it was a very big day of patriotic celebration in Seattle, a presidential holiday. Planned events with the president included a downtown parade with marching band music, 
and special events at Volunteer Park, Woodland Park, and the University of Washington Stadium. Elliott Bay was full of anchored Navy ships, arranged in a four-mile line. At the head of all the battleships, the first to greet the incoming presidential ship with a 21-gun salute and the national anthem was an armored cruiser named the USS Seattle. Seattle was feeling its strength. The president's visit showed the extent to which this frontier town had become a world-class city. Some were calling it Queen City because of its beautiful parks and boulevards. Other boosters dubbed it the Wonder City, claiming it to be the youngest city of its size in the world. That summer, the residents of Seattle were singing and dancing to a melody called Seattle Town, composed by Seattle's own pop star composer, Harold Weeks. Mr. Weeks, who was a Christian scientist and would one day serve on the board of Fourth Church, had been a nationally known ragtime composer since his junior year at Queen Anne High School. Weeks is best known today for his 1918 smash hit, Hindustan, which was widely played by dance orchestras and subsequently became a jazz standard. The Seattle Times featured the catchy Seattle Town as a local hit that was sure to sweep the nation, as so many of Weeks's other songs had. Seattle Town, Seattle Town, your harbor fair beyond compare is the port where dream ships all come true. Harold Weeks's quixotic ditty expressed a persistent local belief that there was something truly special about Seattle. Besides unusual scenic beauty and abundant natural resources, the city possessed an unrelenting optimism referred to as the Seattle spirit. The Seattle spirit included an imaginative vision for a better future the enthusiastic promotion of good ideas, a desire to overcome all obstacles, a willingness to work together. Since the early pioneer days of the 1870s, civic cheerleaders noted the Seattle spirit expressing itself in the effort to bring the railroad to Seattle, in the rebuilding of the city after the fire in 1889, in the promotion of the city as a provisioning stop for the Alaska Gold Rush, in the creation of the highly successful Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition in 1909, 
in the development of the University of Washington campus and the establishment of the shipyards. The city boasted continuing rapid growth, one of the tallest buildings in the world outside of New York City. Now, its battleship namesake was leading the United States Navy as its flagship. And yet Seattle still had so much greater potential to be realized. The editor of the Seattle Times, C.B. Blethen, declared Seattle to be the loveliest city in which to live in the whole world. A front-page headline affirmed the city's growing supremacy. Midway through Seattle's celebratory summer of patriotic fervor, sadly, this high of civic spirit was sobered by an unexpected and most unfortunate turn. Just after the president left Seattle, tragedy struck. Harding was feeling ill as he boarded the train, and just after arriving in San Francisco, he suddenly died. A shocked nation went into mourning over the loss of a very popular leader. Seattle immediately put its organizational abilities toward planning memorial services for the 29th President of the United States. On Tuesday, August 7th, at First Church of Christ Scientist in Seattle, there was a joint meeting of the boards of the seven branch churches. They discussed the idea of holding memorial services for President Harding that Friday, the day of the presidential funeral. Churches of all denominations were planning memorial services, some of them uniting in impressive public ceremonies. Even the Russian Greek Orthodox Church, a community of recent immigrants, shared in the nation's sorrow. It was unanimously agreed by the Christian scientists that they would hold memorial services, but each branch separately. A telegram from the board of directors at the Mother Church in Boston pointed them to the order of services used for President McKinley's memorial service in 1901. On that Friday, the Christian Science reading rooms were closed, and memorial services were held in their church auditoriums at 11 a.m., most businesses in Seattle were closed that day, and even the trains stopped for five minutes of silence at noon. As the Seattle Times put it, From sea to sea, as the nation stilled its busy life a moment in reverence, there seemed to breathe a message from his countrymen, saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The Seven Churches of Christ Scientists Seattle also united in sending a letter of sympathy to the First Lady at the initiative of Fourth Church. Throughout all the unusual events of that summer, the Fourth Church Building Committee continued its work uninterrupted. For the last phase of construction, the installation of the auditorium flooring, the pews, and the pipe organ, each member of the committee was assigned one day of the week to be at the church to monitor progress. Ideally, they would have liked to install the pipe organ first, then the auditorium carpet, 
and the pews last. But the pews arrived first, all 2,025 and a half linear feet of them. They had come by train from the American Seating Company factory in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, about 80 miles north of Oconto, where the first Christian Science Church edifice was built in 1886. There was concern that the curved pews might unbend if left stored in the foyer too long. So the Frederick and Nelson Flooring Department was requested to expedite the mulberry carpet shipment from Philadelphia so they could start installing the pews as soon as possible. There were some delays because the pews did not fit perfectly into the auditorium. According to Dunham, the manufacturer's designer had misread the blueprints and some on-site modifications were needed. General contractor Neil McDonald wanted the pews to be attached to the reinforced concrete floor with smaller bolts than those provided by the manufacturer, which added another delay. But when the church auditorium opened for services, even the pipe organ had been successfully installed. The grand opening for the completed building was on Sunday, September 23, 1923. It was a very busy week for the members of Fourth Church. Besides their usual two Sunday services and their usual Wednesday evening testimony meeting, they held public lectures on Thursday and Friday evening. Like the art glass in their church windows, their lecturer, Charles I. Orenstein, was from New York. And like Jacob S. Shield, their lecturer at the Hippodrome at the start of their building project in 1915, Mr. Orenstein was known to have been Jewish prior to becoming a Christian scientist. Orenstein had previously lectured for Fourth Church in 1917. The fact that Fourth Church so heavily favored the two Christian science lecturers of Jewish heritage, inviting them for major event series before, during, and after their building project, was likely not a coincidence. Their choice of lecturers may have been a nod to the Jewish primitive Christians who, according to Robert G. Reichert, inspired the design of their building, and also to the Jewish Christian scientists who, according to one study, may have comprised as much as 10% of the members of Christian science churches in cities like New York and Chicago. At that time, Jews fleeing persecution in Europe were coming into the United States in large numbers. Many of these new Americans found Christian science appealing. Jacob S. Shields believed that no one had to give up anything good about the Jewish religion or any other religion to come into Christian science. It only added to the essence of all other religions. Christian science is no more for one or the other faction or creed than mathematics or music he explained. At a time when Jews often faced some degree of anti-Semitism, even in America, Christian scientists as a whole were tolerant, sympathetic, and even supportive to Jews, especially at Fourth Church, 
as shown by its generous and public contribution to the Jewish Relief Fund prior to the war. Everyone coming to the church opening had the opportunity to be among the first to see the new auditorium with its art glass windows. With no religious symbolism, as had become standard for Christian Science Branch churches, the windows expressed the beauty of holiness in a way that visitors from almost any religious heritage could appreciate. As for the grand opening, according to the building committee secretary, it was a humdinger of a success, and the art glass windows the source of endless praise. Special notes of thanks were communicated by the Fourth Church Building Committee to many of the vendors, especially the art glass craftsmen. To Neil MacDonald, their ever trustworthy and reliable general contractor, using a biblical term, we are glad to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have erected a beautiful church building, and all who see it are lavish in their praises. It is our joy to thank you for the personal interest you have at all times reflected in the construction of this lovely structure of truth and love. And even though your work is done, remember that the doors always swing inward for you. Come when you can. We shall always be glad to see you. To their architect, George F. Dunham, It is our pleasure to say for the members of this church that they are happy beyond words with their new edifice. The Sunday school room, the foyer, the auditorium, the exterior, all serve to elicit exclamations of admiration and reverence from members and non-members alike. And with each passing Wednesday and with each fleeting Sunday, our thankfulness in the privilege of meeting in this beautiful structure of truth and love grows more profound. The large foyer is delightful. It is a most congenial place in which to linger and talk and renew acquaintances. Be sure you have much of which to be proud in the construction of this exquisite church, which exhales in its noble auditorium a sweet sense of peace and love and unity. To which Dunham responded, I'm most grateful for your words of appreciation for the finished structure. The architect who sees the finished structure mentally before the drawings are made can surely rejoice in having this structure finally brought into manifestation which is visible to the eye. All who have a part in Christian Science Church Building will grow through the experience. And for my part, I want to express my gratitude for the wonderful work which has been done by all those connected with the building, the helpful cooperation which made it possible for us to bring out the complete expression. There was no question that the fourth church edifice was a magnificent work of architecture. Publicly announced to have cost nearly $300,000, it ended up costing nearly three times the original budget. 
the building committee, under the command of Charles T. Hudson, gave the members a place to worship that was the best that money could buy. But along with the building that was such a humdinger of a success, the members also had a humdinger of a mortgage to pay off. Special thanks to Paolo Alderici and Stephanie Trick for their rendition of Hindustan, composed by Harold Weeks from their album, Double Trio Always, used with permission. It's available on iTunes now. You've been listening to Dedication, a Centennial Story, by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com. If you appreciate this podcast, please rate and review it in iTunes, in Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast outlet. On Facebook, like Dedication Centennial Story. And most importantly, please encourage your friends to listen and subscribe. Subscribe.